would turn to Matthew chapter 3. Today we'll continue our series in the book of Matthew. Beginning of our study, we saw that Jesus is the coming king. That has been granted all authority by the Father, has made us his emissaries to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Speaking of the good news, I have some bad news. There's no PowerPoint today. It's not because they're doing something wrong at the back. Sorry, Miss Corey, about passed out. So you're just going to have to take notes by yourself, old school. But today we're going to see four different scenes. We're going to be in Matthew 3 through 4. We're going to work quickly in Matthew as we go through narrative. When we get to discourse, some of the Jesus sermons, we're going to slow down. So we'll get through 3 and 4 today. We have homecoming, and then we'll spend a couple, a number of weeks on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. We're going to see four different scenes in Matthew 3 through 4. We'll have the introduction of John the Baptist, the baptism of Christ, the temptation of Christ, and the calling of the disciples. In these two chapters, you'll see that Christ identifies with sinners. He conquers temptation and calls sinners to follow him in making disciples. First, let's see Let's start here by the forebearer, John, in Matthew 3, 1 through 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So again, there's, here's a new transition in those days. So we have a new time period. Matthew presents the prophet in this text. He's going to present the prophet's message and the prophet's place in history. The prophet is John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What is his message? Look at verse number 2. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a command, repent, and there's a reason. Why should they repent? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? We'll get to that in a few minutes. And what is the prophet's place in history? Matthew proclaims John the Baptist to be the long-prophesied forerunner of the Messiah, quoting a prophet Isaiah, 700 years prior to the time of Jesus and John the Baptist. Matthew's going to quote Isaiah in verse number 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. That was Isaiah 40, verse number 3. Let me read to you verse 4 and 5. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. Then even ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. So the prophet's making a way. Now listen to verse number five. So after this prophetic forerunner, right, after he makes a way, what will happen next? Isaiah 40, verse five, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So after this prophet, this forerunner, makes this path straight, for the Messiah to come, we're going to see the glory of the Lord revealed. What does John tell us in John chapter 1? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory of the Lord is revealed. So John the Baptist is the one that comes before the Messiah. His message is that of repentance. So just look through these few verses in Matthew 3. It's just littered with this idea of repent and confess. Verse number 6, they were baptized in the Jordan, doing what? Confessing their sins. Verse number 8, John tells religious rulers, and verse number 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In the coming chapters, we'll, we'll deal with religious leaders. He, John, John um, 
John the Baptist, is it, is it fair to say he was pretty direct? Just to the point. You don't ask John a question unless you want the answer, and you're going to get the answer if you don't even want to ask the question. What, he, he calls religious leaders a, a brood of vipers. Not, um, that's not kind. Jesus will use this same phrase in later chapters, chapters 12 and chapters 23. So we'll get to the attack on the religious leaders in chapters to come, the months to come. So let me come back here to this idea of repentance. We'll deal with these knuckleheads later. Look down at verse number 11. John says, I baptize you with water for what? For repentance. His message is repentance. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what does John expect the kingdom of heaven to look like? What does he expect the Messiah to do when the Messiah comes? He tells you in verse number 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for what? Repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. See, he's, he's, not, he's not like me. Whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you. He will immerse you with what? The Holy Spirit and with fire. John expects the Christ, the Messiah, to come and immerse the world with the Holy Spirit, going back to Joel's prophecy, and with fire. He explains this further in verse number 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is looking for a separator. He's looking for one that's going to separate the, the wheat from the chaff. He's looking for one that's going to find the fruit and destroy the rubble. Right? That's what he's looking for. He's looking for a separator. He's, he expects the Messiah to gather in the harvest all that the Father has given him and then all that are opposed to him. What's, what's going to happen? They will face unquenchable fire. By the time we get to chapter 11, we'll see that John's expectation, his prophetic chart, isn't matching up with the Lord's. He's going to have questions. So he's going to bring this up in Matthew chapter 11. He's going to try to figure out, hey, are, are you truly the Christ or not? Because yeah, I was expecting a lot of separation to happen. I was expecting fruit and fire. What's going on? We'll get to that in chapter 11. But it, it's after this message that we see Matthew brings in scene number two. Look at verse number 13. Scene changes with the word then. Then Jesus came. So after John's been doing all this, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I, I, I need to be baptized by you. You come to me. This seems amazing. And yet it prompts a lot of questions. First off, why is John baptizing again? Why is he, he took for repentance? So why is Jesus getting baptized? Do you confess like I do that he is the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? Why is he get walking down into the Jordan River to be baptized by John? What sin does he have to confess? There's no sin. John is also rightly shocked by this. <laughs> what, what are you doing? We, we need to switch places here. Why don't you put me under, because I'm the sinner, you're the Savior. And what does Jesus say? 
verse number 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us together. We have to do this together to fulfill all righteousness. At that, John consented. Good enough. Hey, uh, whatever you tell me to do, I'm in, but man, I don't, it's, it's awful strange. When Jesus was born, when deity became wrapped in flesh and dwelt among us, in doing so, Christ identified himself with sinners. He's born of a sinner. He's raised by sinners. He lived among sinners. When Jesus walked down into the Jordan River to be baptized, he identified himself with us again. He's baptized next to people who are doing what? Confessing their sins. He identifies himself with sinners again, with people like me and you. But also by being baptized, he also, it says in verse 15, he fulfilled all righteousness. What is meant by this? One pastor said of Christ's baptism that it, it pictures his death and resurrection. So why do we baptize by immersion? Why do we So the word baptize, if you, if you know Greek, it, it actually means immerse. That's exactly what it means. But also going with Romans, when we, we baptize by immersion, if this is the top of the water, when you get baptized, you go under the water, signifying his death, and you get raised up out of the water, signifying his resurrection of life. There's a picture there. Just like today when we take communion, you understand this bread is not truly the body, and this grape juice is truly not his blood. It's a picture to remind you of what has happened. Baptism does the same thing. So Jesus, one pastor says, Christ's baptism, it pictures his death and resurrection. That's what baptism does. Also, number two, he says it is therefore, it prefigures the significance of Christian baptism. Why do you get baptized? Why do you publicly identify with the Lord? You're just saying, he was buried, was raised for me to walk in newness of life. And so I, I want to be like him. I'm a follower of him. I want to do what he did. And I can only do what he did because he did what he did. So I, I want to fulfill that picture. I want people to know that I identify with Jesus the Nazarene. Number three, he said it, it marks his first public identification. His first public identification with those whose sins he would bear. He's walking down into the water and sinners are confessing their sin. And he goes, I will get baptized for you. He's not doing it for him. Right? He doesn't have any sins to confess. But he identifies with us, and he's baptized. So just a sense of, like, I, I'm going to bear your sins. It's just, again, a picture pointing forward to the cross when he would bear all of our sins. And lastly, number four, he says it affirms his Messiahship publicly by testimony directly from heaven. Well, where do we see public testimony directly from heaven? Look at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. So again, how do we know he wasn't sprinkled? It's like we're, he went down into the water, and now he's coming up out of the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God. Have you, have you tried to picture this? What does this even mean? The heavens are open. Something's happening in the sky. And what? And the Spirit of God descends like a dove, coming to rest on the Christ. And behold, a voice from heaven said, and in some God-shaped thunder, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What are the odds if you're in that Jordan River that you would forget that moment? 
how long would you have stared at the sky? And this is before the days of speakers. What is going on? <laughs> what is happening? This is crazy. I don't know what it looks like for the Spirit of God to descend like a dove, but apparently he did. It could just be a dove. Maybe they go learn each other. Maybe he looked like a dove. Was it the same size as a dove? Bigger? This voice, does it just echo in your mind every night? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is the one. Here the father confirms the son and his mission once again. So we talked about the father continues to affirm the authority that he's given the son. Just one more sense. I'm confirming and affirming your mission. You are my son. I am pleased with you. We also see the Spirit's involvement. So here you have this picture of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father speaking, the Spirit descending, the Son being baptized. Look at the end of verse 17. Again, this, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We don't have time to get into this. So if you're in a small group, Lord willing, we'll get into this because there's a couple texts we don't have time to get into. Matthew litters these two chapters with Old Testament references. We have, don't have time to go back to them all. But Lord willing, we'll get to there this week in our small group time. But in this text, he wraps up Psalm 2-7, the Messianic sons. Remember our study from Psalm, that Psalm 2 is about the Messiah, the, the son. This is my son, and he connects that with Isaiah 42-1, the one that he is pleased with, the one in whom his soul delights. So the father takes those two texts, the king and the suffering servant, says these things together, here, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So after this awesome moment, if you were writing a story, where would you have the story go next? My guess is you wouldn't say, you know what? Let's have this guy go into the wilderness. Right? So that's the next thing you think, that that's probably, but that's exactly what happens. We see the next scene picks up here, again, with the word then. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Then, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Before we hop into these temptations, I want you to consider the theme that Matthew is trying to, to teach. So at the end of chapter 3, we see that the Messiah, the Christ, is God's Son in whom the Father is well pleased. How does that thought connect to the temptation of Christ? You ever thought about that? There's got to be a connection. Why is he going into the wilderness? How does this have anything to do with him being pleased by the Father? The Spirit leads him into the wilderness. So that same dove comes, and then all of a sudden he's going off. What, what is happening? The Spirit led him into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by the devil? So if you've been in church like I have my entire life, you've probably heard sermons on Matthew 4, and you're going to talk about the temptation in this idea that when you're tempted, quote scripture, rely on the Lord, listen to me, those two points are very good. Write those down, take those home. Quote, know the word of God and quote it, right, and rely on the Lord when you're tempted. Those are good things. W we're not going to address that today because I want you to remember the theme. What is the point Matthew has in describing this temptation. How does it connect 
to Jesus being the Son in whom the Father is well pleased? How does that connect? So keep those questions in mind as we look at verse number three. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. First off, if you see this word, if you are, it's be better translated, since. So we just talked about translation over in Sunday school. Be better, each one of these, if it should be, since you are the Son of God, going back to the prophecy of Daniel, since you are the Son of God, then I expect you to do these things. Command these stones to be loaves of bread. After fasting 40 days, the devil tempts Jesus with hunger. Real quick question. Anybody in here ever made bread? Anybody? You lot of sinners. Is that the problem, that he made bread? If you believe Jesus is God, he's already made bread. He made a thing called manna. So what's, what's the problem with making bread when you're hungry? What's, what's the significance of this? In John 4, 34, G- Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do his will. So if he's leading me into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to not eat, that is my food. That's all the bread I need. So Satan is trying to get Jesus to live independent of the Father. You don't need him. You can do this yourself. If you are, since you are the Messiah, just put it in. There you go. Bread. He'll multiply bread in the chapters to come. There's no problem with him doing it. But he will live by what the Father says. I will trust him fully. And I will follow him exclusively. You understand this? I will trust my Father fully, and I will follow him exclusively. I will not live independent of the Father. Doesn't this reek of the first temptation? Adam and Eve were in the garden, Satan tempting not just to eat, but to become a God. Become independent of the Father. You can know you won't need him anymore. You'll be like him. You can be one yourself. Jesus, however, will obey the Father fully and trust the Father exclusively. If the Father, Jesus knows, if the Father wanted him to eat, the Father would provide. Let me repeat that. The Father wanted him to eat, the Father would provide. In college, our, our college president used to say, you know, what, what we order, we pay for. What God orders, he pays for. If he's behind it, he'll take care of it. He writes the checks. So will you trust in those moments when you feel like you're in the wilderness, when you feel famished, will you trust the Father to give you what you need? Or will you live independent of him? Temptation one, how does Jesus respond to this? He responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. 
He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, and he says, But he answered, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I don't need food, Satan. I need what comes from my Father. That's what I need. That the Father's delivered it, that's what I needed. That the Father has withheld it, I don't need it. In the wilderness, Israel failed to trust God for manna. Moses tells them in Deuteronomy 8.3, they should have learned to trust the Lord. They failed, and Jesus succeeded. Here, Satan tries, and he fails. But if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. So he does. Look at verse number 5. The devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall command his angels concerning you, and on, the other, on their hands they bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Did you, did you hear what I just read correctly? Does Satan know the Bible? Is he quoting scripture? He is. Left out a small portion. Oddly enough, just a little bit. And the verse that follows is amazing. We're not going to get there. We'll be able to smuggle it to you. The verse that follows is amazing. And it connects to Genesis 3.15. And it's, you're just like, what? It's the reason why Satan didn't continue to verse 13 in Psalm 91. But Satan's trying to get Christ to test his father. Make the father do something spectacular to save you. So jump down from this temple, pinnacle. Everyone's going to see you, not die, and they're all going to come to you now. Set up your kingdom now. Jesus responds. Verse number seven, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16, Moses reminded the Israelites about how they complained about a lack for water. Miss Tammy read that today. They tested God in Massa. They failed. Israel failed again. How did Jesus do? 2-0. It's another victory. Satan's going to try to go for the knockout punch in verse number 8. Again, the devil take him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kings of the world and their glory. He said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus, let's skip the cross, and you can have a kingdom now. Take the easy road. In life, the easy path, the path of least resistance, is rarely the best. Right? The path of least resistance is rarely the best in life. There's confrontation, there's conflict in the home. Just ignore it. It'll get better. There's this large lump on my arm. <laughs> Don't mess with that. It'll be fine. So sometimes you think, well, it's just easier. It's better just to do the right thing each time. And so he said, just, just worship me and be done with this. Will Jesus betray the Father? Look at verse number 10. Jesus said, be gone, Satan. Pause. You, you understand your Savior has the power to command the devil to leave. And at that, he must obey. You understand this? Be gone. And that's enough. Still, under his thumb. <laughs> you got a little bit longer, pal. Take a hike. Take a long walk back off a short pier. Get out of here. 
be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus quotes another portion that Miss Tammy read today from Deuteronomy 6, 13 through 14, and tells Satan, take off. In Deuteronomy 6, 13 through 14, Moses warns the Israelites about following other gods, which they already did back in Exodus 32 when they created a golden calf. Where Israel was faced with these temptations, they failed, but for Jesus, when he faced them, he succeeds. He is the victor. He did not just brush aside temptation and sin. He conquers it. He conquers it decisively. It's like a Miami Dolphins win. It's like 70 points. Who puts up those numbers? But Jesus wins. He annihilates the competition. He shows us to live triumphantly in the Father's will. And what happens next? Verse number 11. Then the devil left him, right? Be gone. And what does he have to do? He has to leave. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What, did, what verse did Satan quote earlier? Psalm 91. That angels are going to come and minister you. They'll guard you. And, and, and Jesus just successfully handles all temptation. And what exactly happens after that? The angels come and minister to him. God's word is true. But so is his time. And if you will live fully embracing the Father, I'll trust where he has me today, then you find his word finds its way. It just makes, makes sense. All of a sudden it comes all together. Now look at verse 12. We'll see the scene four start with the word now. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. John's arrest seems to propel the ministry of Christ. After his arrest in verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived at Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that was spoken of by the prophet might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in shadow and death on them, a light has dawned 700 years after Christ prophesied that this would take place in Isaiah 9, it happens. And if you keep reading Isaiah 9, you read verse 1, you get all the way down to, that you're going to find out that this, this light, this person coming from Galilee, he's going to be born. For unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given, and his name shall be called, what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. A child's going to be born, Isaiah says, who will be called Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. On his shoulders, I mean, this King of David, his on his shoulders, this kingdom's never going to end. This is the light of the world. And he will shine in the region of Galilee. Look for him there. But he won't just shine to the Jews. Because what does the text tell us in verse 15 at the end? The Galilee of the Gentiles. The Gentiles will be coming to. Isaiah's trying to tell the Jewish people, look for the Messiah in this region. Yes, you'll find him born in Bethlehem. But his ministry is going to be in this area, and he's going to be drawing all men unto himself. And he will be mighty God. What is he called in chapter 1? Emmanuel. God with us. He is the mighty God. And then we see Verse 17, from that time. So here we have one of these turning points in the book. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, what's his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven 
is that hand. Does that, does that sound familiar to you? That's the same exact message as who? John the Baptist. That's why we have to try to squish these two together. So back in chapter 3, now look at verse 18. Here's this point. And again, let me say it real quick. Again, for turning point, if you weren't here for our first Sunday working through this, this turning point, this is the message of Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand, from this time all the way to chapter 16, verse 21. This is the message of Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From Matthew 4 through 16, 21. Now look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, his father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Christ grew up as a nobody from Nazareth. And now he's going to the nobodies of Galilee and calling them to follow him. Praise God that Christ can use nobodies. He can use, <coughs> excuse me, the least of these. And notice what Jesus wants them to do. Look back at verse 19. Verse 19 shows us an action we are to perform and the purpose behind the action. What is the action that Christ calls the disciples to do? What's the action? Follow, follow me. That's the action. What is the purpose? For what purpose should I follow you? And I will make you fishers of men. I'll follow you. Why? So that you can make more disciples. What is the message of Jesus from now until chapter 16? Repent. Turn from your sin. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning the judgment is coming. So repent now before you fall under the wrath of God. Now he talks to the disciples, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I'm going to give you the same message that I have. We're going to be telling everybody, the whole world, in fact, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. This is their purpose. Their action, follow their purpose, to make disciples. To, I'm going to live like him, I'm going to act like him, and I'm going to have the same message he has. Out in the commons area, some of you may have noticed we have a, a new standing banner out there that reads, we exist to glorify God by helping people love God and others, serve God and others, and share God with others. We exist. To glorify God by helping people love God and others, serve God and others, and share God with others. Many of us understand that we ought to love the Lord. Many of us understand that. We love Him because He first loved us. We should love the Lord. Fewer, it seems, understand the call to serve. We, we, should, we exist to glorify God by loving God and others, but also serving God and others. Jesus not come to be served, but to serve. Do, do you want to be like him? Well, then you'll serve God and others. But fewer still obey the command 
to share God with others. See, this line just keeps dropping. What's Christ's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christian, if you call yourself a Christ follower, you follow for what purpose? To be fisher of men and women, children, however you want to include them. Isn't that just for the disciples, though? We get to the end of the book, and what does Matthew say? What does God tell his followers? They're supposed to be making more followers go into all the world. Go. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them, chapter 3, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, teaching them to deserve everything I've taught you. This is the Great Commission. It starts right here in chapter 4. Follow me with purpose. I don't need to tell others. That's hard to, it's hard to justify that thought, isn't it? We're commanded. Why would you not want somebody to know him? What are we hiding? Christian, do your part. Follow Christ by being a fisher of men. Matthew ends this chapter by speaking of Christ's ministry to heal and how his fame was spreading. Before we close, let me walk through a a quick lesson we learn of Christ. At the end of chapter 3, remember I I said, what's the purpose at the end of chapter 3? He baptized and, and he says, this is my son. Psalm 2-7. In whom I am well pleased, Isaiah 42-1. Why those two phrases? And how does that connect to being led into the wilderness and being tempted and tried? How do these things connect? Back in our study of Exodus, some of you will remember this clearly. If you don't, I apologize. <laughs> I should have taught it clearer. Back in our study of Exodus, we saw God call someone else his son. Do you remember who God called his son in Exodus? Israel. This is my firstborn. He says that in Exodus 4.22. He says, Israel is my firstborn son. Well, what do we know about Israel at this time? They were in Egypt, faced heavy oppression. And in Exodus 1, the, the ruler was having Hebrew male children killed. Awful time. One escapes. One escapes the wrath of an evil king. His name is Moses, and God uses that person to deliver his people from slavery. On their path to freedom, Israel walks through, it's called the Red Sea. You guys remember this water's part? And they're walking through on dry land. Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 2, do you know what he calls that? They were all baptized in the sea. He calls that their baptism. After being delivered from oppression and baptized, God's son is then led by God into the wilderness with this huge cloud and fire at night. So they're led by God through the Red Sea into the wilderness where in Exodus we know of at least three major challenges that they faced. At least three. Do you remember these? And, and how did they respond to these challenges? 
good? No. They stunk. And you would have too, so relax. Right? So they first, they're, they're faced with a lack of food. In Exodus 16, God provides manna. Lack of water. In Exodus 17, and they decide, let's not just complain about the water. How about we stone Moses? We've, we've upped, we're going to kill God's man. I'm not for that suggestion. I think it's really poor, right? Uh, let's not throw stones. Not a good thing. We're going to kill this guy. And, and the Lord says in Exodus 17, why are you testing me? Why are you testing me? And, and it all climaxes catastrophically in Exodus 32 where they decide to take the very things God gave them and craft a golden idol out of it and worship it. After grumbling complaining, they're led to the mountain of God where God's man goes up onto the mountain for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. And wh what is Moses doing up there? Is he eating? No, he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. While on the mountain, he receives God's word and takes God's word and turns and teaches the people from the mountain God's word so they know how to live for the Lord. You understand all this? This is Exodus. Now let me, as I did in our Exodus story, let me repeat this story back to you from the book of Matthew. So in Matthew chapter 1, we have a child that is born. An evil ruler starts slaughtering the innocent Hebrew male children. And in Matthew chapter 2, God raises a prophet, and he raises one to deliver his people. The one God raises to deliver his people heads to Egypt, and he calls him out of Egypt. I've called my son, Hosea 11, also going back to Exodus, also speaking of the Christ. He raises a prophet, leaves Egypt, comes back to the Jordan River and is baptized. And then you hear these texts. This is my son, Psalm 2, the king. This is the suffering servant, the one in whom I delight, Isaiah 42, 1. He's baptized in the Jordan and is led by whom? By God, where? Into the wilderness. Like this seems like a Star Wars story where you keep seeing the same thing over and over again. Like this, is this really happening? He goes into the wilderness in 40 days and 40 nights. He faces temptation. What temptations does he face? Wait, he faces three. Isn't that it's amazing? What three things does he face? Well, he faces something with bread. Does that sound familiar? So in Deuteronomy, the text that we quoted earlier, where Moses is preaching at them in Deuteronomy 6 through 8, the entire sermon there, he's quoting about their failures in Exodus 16 through 32. So he said, when you were tempted and you grumbled and complained about the bread, you were supposed to learn what? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what does Jesus respond in the first temptation? Man does not live by bread alone. They failed, Satan. You're not going to get me. They are the failed son of God, not me. So he comes back again. Well, I got them to complain about the water and test God by trying to stone his prophet. I'll try to get him to test God. And what does he say? You do not test the Lord your God. Again, Moses quoting, going back to Exodus. You failed at Massa. You failed at Meribah. 
and you tested the Lord. You're not supposed to be testing the Lord your God. And then the last one. Like, what are the odds that God's going to bow down to Satan? But he's like, it worked on them. I'm all for two. Let's, let's just go for the jugular here. Bow down and worship me. And Jesus will quote from Deuteronomy 6, 13 and 14, going back again to their failure at the golden calf. You failed. You followed another God. You will love the Lord your God alone. That's it. Not bowing down to anyone else. Where Israel failed, failure, failure, failure. Jesus succeeds, succeeds, succeeds. He is the conqueror of temptation. He is the victor. Jesus is what Israel should have been but was not. He is the perfect son of God, the spotless lamb that was prophesied to come. Therefore, the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He does not fail. He will not fail me. He will trust me fully. He will follow me exclusively. And the Exodus, right, they get through all that and they get to the mountain, they receive that law from God and what, somebody tell me what's next, what's coming next in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount where we will learn how to live for our Lord. Can you make that up? How does this all, I mean, how do you, I mean, Satan comes in and then, but even Satan, with all his wiles and all his advances, as powerful as he may be, and he is to us, still has to fall in line. And then when his turn's over, be gone. You're done. I'm done with you. He has to leave. Because there's one true king. There's one true son. And he's the conqueror over temptation, and it's going to lead to the cross where see, he's also the conqueror over all sin and death and hell. Christian, this is where our hope lies. So learn all you can about temptation from this text. Read scripture, memorize scripture, quote scripture, rely on the Lord. When you read Matthew 4, do not forget this point that Christ identifies with sinners in chapter 3. He conquers temptation in chapter 4 and then he calls us to follow him in making disciples. This is what we're supposed to be doing. He's the one that identifies with sinners. He conquers temptation. He will soon conquer sin and then he calls us as sinners to follow him in making disciples. He succeeds, Jesus does, where we all fail. So what does all this mean for us today? Let me ask you a couple questions before we sing and take communion. First off, friend, earlier in chapter 3, we read that Christ will separate the wheat from the chaff. These were the expectations of John the Baptist. Well, was he wrong? Yes and no. He, he wasn't wrong that this is what the Lord will do, but he, he had the timeline off. Because in, in Matthew 25, verse 32, we see that Jesus will be the separator. He will separate the sheep from the goats and those that are his he will call to his home. 
to live with him forever, and those that have opposed him, the goats, he will banish to eternal fire. So John was right. Jesus just had to go through the cross first. And then he's going to have this time period called the church age where he's going to beckon his followers to go be fishers of men. Because God is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why the fire didn't come immediately. Friend, will you heed the call to repent? Will you turn? That's all repentance means. You're on the wrong track. You realize, I'm a sinner. I'm going to turn. I'm going to go. I want to be the Lord's. God, forgive me. Confess your sin. Call out like the thief on the cross, Lord, save me. Not just from hell, but bring me to yourself. It's one of the greatest things about Jesus that he is God with us. He's with us, and he promises to never leave us or forsake us. There's eternal relationship to be gained. Friend, I beg you, come. We sang, oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Or in the song, Rock of Ages, Lord, save me from wrath and make me pure. Will you do that today? You can do that by admitting that you and I that we are sinners, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Call on his name. Whoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Friend, if you have questions on how you can do that, how you can walk with the Lord for the rest of your days, salvation is not dependent upon you, it's dependent upon him, but you can confess. He will forgive, and he will call you son or daughter. You're his forever. If you have questions how you can do that, see myself or Christian training training. Next, for those here that claim to know Jesus as their Savior, for those that claim to have repented and turned to the Lord. First Christian, have you ever been biblically, biblically baptized? Meaning after you accepted Christ, so after you trusted Jesus, you were, you were baptized by immersion. So throughout the New Testament, encourage you, if you've never thought through this, throughout the New Testament, there's not one instance of somebody getting baptized before they repent. What was John's message? Repent, and then what did he do after that? He baptized. Read the rest of the New Testament. Baptism always follows repentance. Baptism does not save you. Let me repeat. Baptism does not, N-O-T, it does not save you, but it does identify you with Jesus. Just as he is buried and raised, so too you can be buried and raised, and you would publicly proclaim to the world, I want be identified with my Savior. Christian, think of it this way. When Christ was baptized, who did he want to identify with? You. Everyone look at me. When Jesus wanted to be baptized, he wanted to be identified with you. Would you, in turn, choose to be identified with him? That's all baptism is. Would you be willing to take that step? I would, I, I would hope you would. By faith, Christian, take that step to be like Christ in that way. Next, how are you handling temptation? Are you obeying him fully? 
Are you trusting the Father even now exclusively? Or do you find yourself, like in the old hymn, come thou fount prone to wander? Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Christian, are you testing the Lord by your actions? And in 1 Corinthians 10.9, speaking of the, the failures in the wilderness, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.9, we must not put Christ to the test. Do not put Christ to the test. At the conference that we were at, one speaker said of Christians testing the Lord. Listen to this. It's a great quote. Speaking of Christians testing the Lord, the speaker said, No one, no one ever learned holiness by seeing how close they could get to the fire. No one ever learned holiness by seeing how close they could get to the fire. In college, it's kind of a joke. It's always easier to ask forgiveness than permission. When it comes to the holiness of God, that is not the case. No one ever learned holiness. Never learned holiness by seeing how close they could get to the fire. Christian, do not test the Lord your God by your actions. Or perhaps there's just an idol in your heart. Or God, God is not first. Maybe he's second. Maybe he's a way long ways down the list. If you, you find yourself here, what should you do? <laughs> What's the message of Jesus? What was the message of John? Repent. Repent. Just turn. If we confess our sins, what, do we tell, what does the Bible tell us? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christian, turn. Make it right today, and let's move on. We got how much time left? Twelve and a half hours. Jesus, help me live for you. I repent, I confess, I want to make things right, I want to walk with you the way I ought. Would you grant me grace to live for you for the next 12 and a half hours? Next, are, are you a follower of Jesus? Do you consider yourself a follower of Jesus? So if you're going to just look at the disciples in Matthew 4, and I ask you, look back at Matthew 4, 19, how would you tell if they truly did follow Jesus or not? Well, they, they'd have to still be following him. Well, that's good, right? That's not rocket science. What else would you expect from them? According to Matthew 4.19, follow me and I will make you, what? Fishers of men. Well, if they're not fishers of men, are they following Does that logic make sense? If I, if my purpose was, if he's going to make me this, then how would people know, Christian, if you truly are a follower of Christ? Would it start by just obeying the simplest command? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what would be the next command you'd think he would ask us to do? Go make disciples of all nations. We exist to glorify God by loving God and others, serving God and others, and sharing God with others. These, these are core purposes to the Christian life. Remember the end of the theme of this book, 
is that Christ has made us his emissaries to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So how are you doing? Stinky? Meh? Do you need to turn? If you do, then turn. Turn. Repent. Confess. Then by faith, ask Jesus this week, would you help me, kind Savior, to follow you by doing my part in making people disciples. I can't do it. I know you can, but I, I want to do my part. Maybe I just need to cast the seed. Maybe I need to water. We understand, God, you give the increase, but Lord, allow me to be a laborer in your vineyard. Lastly, how thankful are you that our creator and our sustainer identifies with people like us? How thankful are you that the great high priest conquered temptation? How amazing is it that God calls sinners like you and I to follow him? It's a pretty sweet deal, isn't it? And we're, we're going to take communion and remember all the Lord's done for us and just go, he knows my name. He called me. He called me. And he, he allows me to love him and I, I love him because he loves me. I can serve him. I can share him. Is there no end to his grace? Is there no limit to his mercy? Oh, God, thank you for identifying with knuckleheads like us, allowing us to be part of your work and actually encouraging us, come on, you can do it. You can do it. Come on. I got you. I'm with you. The whole way. Praise God. Let's pray. Oh, what a Savior we have. Jesus, thank you. Father, we thank you for sending the Son that is your beloved, in whom you delight. We thank you for granting us the spirit who works, encourages us, turns us to your word. Lord, there's so much we can learn from this text. And Lord, yet our hearts may be so distracted. Maybe we're struggling not just with one of these sins or two, but maybe all. So God, would you help us? Help me. Lord, as we get ready to prepare our hearts for communion, to repent, confess, make it right, and by your grace, live these last 12 hours of this day for you and for you only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.